apathy. What makes apathy so problematic is the great gap between the glory and the beauty and the wonder of Christ and our response to him. He is worthy of so much more. Welcome to First and Foremost, a weekly broadcast of First Presbyterian Church in the heart of downtown Greenville. Senior Pastor Richard Gibbons invites you to join us as we study God's Word together and discover what is first and foremost in our lives. If you have your Bibles, let's turn our attention to Revelation chapter 3. We'll be looking at this very wonderful letter to the church in Laodicea uh, that Jesus uh, had uh, spoken to the Apostle John. Revelation 3 verses 14 to the end. Now, as you're turning there, just let me set the scene a little bit here in the book of Revelation. Uh, there's, at the very beginning of this book, there's seven small letters that John records, but they're really the words of Jesus to seven churches. And they're really the words of Jesus, not to the seven churches, but ultimately to the whole church, to you and to me this morning. So as we listen to the church, uh, the letter to the church at Laodicea, we'll just remember these are the words of Christ our Lord speaking to us, his people. So let's listen to what he has to say to us, beginning in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 3. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I've acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me. Gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and solve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, and he with me. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's ask him to bless our time together now as we go to him in prayer. Our Lord, this is your word, right from the mouth of Christ. And Lord, we are your people. And Lord, those two things belong together, your word and your people. So may we, as your people, have ears to hear this message today. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. A few years ago, I began to do something that I'd never done before. I began to drink coffee. And I know for those of you who are avid coffee drinkers, you're thinking, wow, what took you so long, right? Welcome to the club, the rest of us. Coffee is a wonderful thing. And for those of you who drink it and love it, you know this. In fact, on a cold winter's morning, there's nothing better than a hot cup 
of coffee. And even in the summer when it's hot, even like now in August, people drink coffee too, not only hot, but also they enjoy it cold. There's iced coffee now and frappuccino coffees and all kinds of coffees that are cold. And people love coffee in all kinds of ways. But even in my short time in the world of coffee drinkers, I've yet to hear anyone go into a Starbucks and say, you know, I would just like some coffee that's been sitting around a while. Maybe room temperature, tepid just kind of sitting out. Do you have anything like that? Now, of course, we laugh at that because we know that coffee that's room temperature, coffee that's lukewarm is not good coffee. In fact, you've made that mistake, haven't you? I've, I know what happens because it happens to me. You make a cup of coffee in the morning, you set it on the counter, and you forget about it. You go do something, you come back, you take a sip, it's tepid, room temperature, and that little gag reflex in the back of your throat is triggered and you want to spit it out. You and I know that even when it comes to the most basic, ordinary things like coffee, some things are better hot or cold. Jesus in this passage today comes to us to make a very similar point about our spiritual lives. And it's a very radical point. It's a point that should shatter our image of what spirituality and religion ought to be. And here's why, because you and I have grown up in a world that is trying to convince us that the best kind of spirituality, the best kind of religion is right down the middle, neither hot nor cold. Perhaps you grew up with parents who told you, look, you need enough religion to be respectable. You don't want to be an atheist. But at the same time, don't go nuts with it. Don't be one of those zealots. Don't be an extremist. You want to be a middle-of-the-road religious person. You want to be a center of the fairway. You want to be halfway. You want to be lukewarm. That's the best way to be spiritual. Jesus comes in this passage today and stuns us with the reality that perhaps the most frightening spiritual condition, perhaps the most dangerous spiritual condition, is the the middle-of-the-road condition. He shatters our ideas of what spirituality is like by suggesting to us that actually it's the person who is bored with God, who's indifferent to God, who's in a sense either for or against God, that might have found himself in the most dangerous spiritual place. In fact, what's interesting about this passage is that the church of Laodicea is the only church of the seven churches that Jesus writes to that he offers no compliment for. If you've looked at the other six churches in the letters prior to this, which we don't have time to get into, what's interesting about each one of them is that Jesus finds something good to say about them even in the midst of what we would consider bigger sins, sins of heresy, sins of open uh, licentiousness, sins of idolatry. Jesus looks at all those sins and still finds something good within them, something to compliment them about, but he gets to the church at Laodicea and there's no compliment, nothing positive. Jesus hasn't saved the best for last with Laodicea. He has, in a sense, saved the worst for last. So this morning, we're faced with a very challenging and critically important text as Jesus comes to us in this passage to address our apathy. 
Now, the honest truth is we're all in different places when it comes to our apathy. Some of us have woke up this morning, and this passage, we, as we heard it read, speaks right to our hearts. We're thinking, that, that is about me. I am that person. And others of us woke up with a lot of zeal for Christ, and that's wonderful. But you know what? Life ebbs and flows. And another point, you might find yourself dealing with the problem of apathy. But here is the point Jesus wants to make. It's a bigger deal than you think. So I want to take some time this morning to together bore down into this passage and unpack a little more what exactly we can learn about apathy and most importantly, how we can address it in our lives. Now to do that, I want you to make sure you're still open in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. So let's start with the very first issue before us this morning, and that is the problem of apathy. Why is it such a big deal anyway? I mean, doesn't Jesus have more important things to be bothered by? Wouldn't we think he'd get more upset at idolatry, heresy, bold sinning? I mean, come on, is it really that big a deal? You know, we often don't pause to ask the question of what the problem with apathy might be because the honest truth is we're even apathetic about our apathy sometimes, right? Never get around even wondering why it would be a problem in the eyes of Jesus. But what I want you to see in this first point is that the reason apathy is a problem in this text is very simple. The problem is because of the object of our apathy. To put it another way, what makes apathy such a problem for our spiritual condition is what we're apathetic about. We are apathetic about the most wonderful, the most glorious the most amazing person in the universe, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the most amazing thing we could possibly behold. That is the thing that we're apathetic about. The thing that makes apathy such a problem is that it misses the beauty, the wonder, and the glory of Christ. I'm convinced that's why our passage begins with Christ's own self-description. I don't know if you picked that up in verse 14. Notice what it says there. These are the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Do you know who it is that speaks to you, says Christ? Christ is the Lord of all, the pinnacle of the universe, the most glorious and most beautiful thing imaginable. He is the one who flung the stars in the space. He has created all things. He is always righteous, always true, always faithful, the great amen. It is him that you're bored with. You know, there's some things in life that we can be forgiven to some extent for being rather apathetic about where our apathy might be understandable. You know, when I wake up in the morning and I look out the window in my backyard and I behold the view out the back of my house, I'm rather unimpressed. And maybe you are as well. Maybe you look out in your backyard, you think, man, I wish I had a better view here. I'm I'm rather unimpressed by this. I've got my yard that's turning brown because it hasn't been watered. I've got a few scraggly bushes. I've I've got no real view. I've got this ugly little creek going through there, and you're maybe not that impressed with what you can see in your backyard. But if you found yourself standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon, and you were to behold its magnificence, its grandeur, and its depth, and its vastness, and its scope, and its beauty, and if we were to then 
shrug our shoulders with boredom, then there'd be something very, very wrong with us. Because you don't miss the point here about apathy. What makes apathy so problematic is the great gap between the glory and the beauty and the wonder of Christ and our response to him. He is worthy of so much more. Once you realize that, you realize that maybe it is true that boredom with God and difference with God might just be one of the most dangerous spiritual conditions around. George MacDonald said it this way, complaint against God is sometimes far nearer to God than indifference. Now make no mistake about it, apathy is a bigger spiritual problem than we realize. But you know, there's more here in this text to explore than just the problem of apathy. There's actually a, a second issue that comes up in this passage that may be even more to the, to, the, to the front of what's on our mind is, is how, did you, how did we get there in the first place? What's the cause of apathy? How does a person get apathetic and bored with God? You may be sitting here this morning wondering that yourself. Maybe you look back on your life and prior years, you think, you know, I used to have a lot more energy for spiritual things. I used to be a lot more excited about my relationship with Christ. I used to be a lot more zealous for the things of God, and now I am not. And what has led me there? What is the cause of apathy. We look under this second point this morning. What we realize is that apathy in this passage has a real clear cause. Now, just to be clear, there's lots of things that can cause apathy. Our passage is not giving an exhaustive list of all the things that can lead a person down that path, but it does highlight one of the most critical, central, core things that can lead someone to an apathetic life, and it's simply this, self-sufficiency. At the center of the Laodiceans was that they were fully confident in their own abilities and didn't think they needed God. Now, once you realize that self-sufficiency is sort of the, the, the underlying issue with apathy, what you realize about apathy is apathy is more of a symptom than a disease. Apathy is more the product of something else, deeper and more profound in our souls, and what is that thing that's deeper or more profound in our souls? Well, it's this idea that we don't need God. In fact, the Laodiceans almost say that exact thing. Look down in the passage again in verse 17 and notice what they said. Jesus here is quoting the Laodiceans. You say, says Jesus, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. I want that last phrase to sink in for a moment. I do not need a thing. I don't know if I can imagine a, a verse or a phrase or a sentence in all the Bible that captures better something that is at its core antithetical to the truth of Christianity than that phrase. Christianity is the opposite of that in every way. 
True Christianity is not a, I've got it all together religion, but no, I don't, and I'm in desperate need of forgiveness and grace. Christianity is not when we come to God and say, well, I'll meet you halfway. You do a little bit, and I'll do a little bit, and that's the way spiritual things work. No, Christianity is about I have tremendous needs. I am tremendously falling short. I am a sinner in need of grace. And yet the Laodiceans go to Christ and say, I need nothing. And when they say that, they have uttered one of the most profound non-Christian statements imaginable. If we were to put it in modern slang, it would be someone saying the phrase, I've got this. Maybe you've heard someone say that phrase. Hey, I've got this. All, got it all under control right here. Now, by the way, if someone says, I've got this, and you happen to be rolling camera, don't stop filming. Because usually this is the eve of something bad about to happen to them, right? I've got this, and they go try to do something. They don't have this, right? And we know that in life, often we think we have something when we don't. Self-sufficiency is a cancer that will eat away at your spiritual life. You know, you and I know that this is true not just in our spiritual lives. Actually, we, we know this is true in other parts of life as well. It's true in athletics. It's true in sports. If you were to ask a coach what he fears most about his team as he coaches his team, you might think it would be fear of injury or fear of someone blowing a knee out or spraining an ankle. No, that's not what, what it is. What coaches fear more than anything when they have a talented team is that they begin to think they're immortal and invincible and cannot be beaten and need nothing and are completely above the need to work hard and try hard and train. It's overconfidence that will destroy a team before anything else. You know, the day I was watching television, and I don't even know how I ended up here, but I found myself watching a documentary. It was actually one of those ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries, and this one happened to be on the 1980 U.S. hockey team and how they beat the Soviet Union in the Olympics. Arguably one of the greatest sports upsets in the history of sports. So incredible, in fact, I imagine most of you right now, when I said the U.S. versus the Soviet Union in hockey in 1980, you knew exactly where you were. You knew exactly what you're doing. You remember watching that exact game and what your response was to it. It was one of the most amazing sports events ever in terms of the history of upsets. Here you have the greatest hockey team in the history of the world, the Soviet Union, playing against a bunch of college kids from the United States that had no business even being on the same rink with them, and they ended up losing What's interesting about this documentary, though, is it did something no one had done before. Rather than interviewing the American players, it interviewed the Russian players. In fact, what it did was it tracked down all the remaining players from that Soviet team, spread out all over the world, and they interviewed them, and they all had the same question that was asked of those players, and that is, how did this happen? How could you possibly lose that game? What's interesting is the reaction of the Russian players was almost to a man the same. We lost that game because of overconfidence. In essence, they skated out on the ice and said, we got this. No needs here. Got it all together. And the reason for their confidence was actually, in one sense, well-founded because they had played the Americans before the Olympics even started, if you remember this, in a friendly match and beat them 10-3. to 3. 
I mean, if you give up 10 goals in hockey, that is unbelievably bad. The Russians thought we have no chance at all of losing to this team. We've got it all together. No needs here. Christ comes to us in this passage and says, have you any idea that it's that sort of self-sufficiency that will sink your spiritual life faster than anything? You know, there's all kinds of reasons people become self-sufficient. Sometimes people find themselves, when they grow up, they, they, they realize that they're attractive physically, and that makes them self-sufficient. I don't need anything else. Some of them, some people grow up and have great talent, and that makes people self-sufficient. But this passage highlights another cause of self-sufficiency, and you see it all over this text, and that is, what led the Laodiceans to be self-sufficient was their wealth, was their money. Did you, did you hear the language? They admitted as much. They said, I am rich. I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. Now, make no mistake about it. This passage is not saying it's sinful to have money. It's not saying it's wrong to have money. There's nothing wrong with having money. What this passage is saying is that when you have a lot of money, it's an opportunity for self-sufficiency. And that self-sufficiency can lead to apathy. What do you trusting in today when you think about your own life? Talent, ability, bank account. The message for Christ here is very simple. There's only one thing that we can rely on that will never give way, and that is trusting in the grace of Christ itself. And you know, that really leads us to the third thing this morning that this passage brings out, and that's really the key issue. is not just the cause of it, right? Not just why it's a big problem, but what do you do about it? What's the solution to apathy anyway? What can possibly be done? Here's where Jesus brings a wonderful piece of advice and counsel to his listeners and reminds them what the solution to apathy really is. And we see it in verse 18. Jesus says, I counsel you. I love that opening phrase. It's like Jesus is saying, I've got some advice for you. You need to listen to what I'm getting ready to tell you. Here's what you need to do. I counsel you to buy from me. Now notice what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's, he's picking up on the marketplace and monetary uh, theme. And he's saying, basically, you Laodiceans have so much money. I know you're used to spending money. I know you're used to buying things. I know you like to go out in the marketplace. Here's a new idea. I need you to pick a new marketplace and have a new thing to purchase. Come buy from me. And you'll have real wealth. Not physical wealth, but spiritual wealth. Come buy from me and you'll have real clothes. Not the kind of clothes you think matter. The kind of clothes that really matter. Come and buy from me. And I'll give you the real eyes to see your own condition. In other words, the cure for our own apathy and self-sufficiency is by turning from what we rely on and turning back and beholding afresh and anew the beauty and wonder of Christ. You may not realize it in this passage, but Jesus is actually echoing an Old Testament text when he does this. When he invites his, his listeners to come and purchase from him in a marketplace, this is an echo of Isaiah 55. And Revelation does this sort of thing all over the place. And this is an amazing example of it. God goes to Israel in Isaiah 55, and here's what he tells Israel. Come, everyone who thirsts, 
come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and for your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to me, eat what is good and delight in the richest of fare. Notice what's going on. Jesus is stepping before the Laodiceans as the God of Israel and making the same call. Come to this marketplace and you will find delight and satisfaction beyond your dreams. Here's the question for us this morning. Do you really believe that? Put it another way, do you really believe that Jesus is better than all the other things that we seek to satisfy ourselves with? If we're honest about that today, we would probably admit, and not myself included, that we don't always believe it. We, we, we look at Jesus and we say, you know what, I know I should go over there, but I think real life is over here. With all these things in the world that I want to satisfy myself with, that's where real life is. Yeah, I know I should be over here with Jesus, but this is where it really all is. If you believe that, your spiritual life is going to struggle. What Jesus is coming to say is, no, what, where real satisfaction is, where real feasting is, where real delight is, is over here with me. Until we renew that awareness of how great Jesus is, we will never be able to break ourselves out of our apathy. C.S. Lewis captured it well. He said this about us that I think is one of his most poignant quotes and really captures this text. He says this, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in the slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. Here's an exhortation for all of us today. We need to stop being so easily pleased. There's something better than what we're feasting on, and that is the person of Christ to behold his beauty, his goodness, and his wonder, and to make him the delight of our souls is the cure for our apathy. You know what I love about this passage? is how it ends. And here's where we'll bring this to a close, but I want you to notice that Jesus at the end of this actually gives us a motivation for coming back to him. That, that's the cure, right? It's coming back to him. But not, I want you to notice that Jesus gives you a motivation and it's the most famous passage in this text. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You know what Jesus is doing here? He's actually citing or alluding to the Song of Solomon, that Old Testament text about a husband who goes to his wife and knocks on the door and says, I want to be with you. Jesus comes to us as the groom, and we are his bride, and he bangs on the door and says, do you realize something? I want to be with you. I want to renew that relationship. I want things to be like they were. Will you open the door so I can come in? Gentle, graceful, patient is our Lord. My prayer today is that we would respond to that invitation that we would open that door 
and that we would eat with him. Amen and amen. Let's close together in prayer. Our Lord, we're fickle people. We admit it. One day we pursue one thing and another day another thing. But Lord, we pray that you would set our hearts on you, that you might be the delight of our souls, and that we might come to you realizing that this is the only thing that will satisfy. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Join us Wednesday evenings at 6 for Dave Ramsey's Financial Peace University. In this nine-week class beginning September 14th, you'll learn to create a budget and get out of debt. Visit firstpressgreenville.org for more details and to register.